family. I uh, love them to death, and I don't get to spend enough time with it right now. I had one month to live. Enjoy every day with them. If I had one month to live, I'd put my heart where it needs to be. Quit my job and spend it with my kids. I would try the 70-foot triple jump over there at Three Palms on my dirt bike. Straighten my act up. I, I wouldn't work. I would take a dance class with my husband. Like ballroom dancing like you see on TV. I would eat more donuts. Definitely a pastor carry, eat more donuts. Oh my gosh. Um, probably invest in some life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> if I had one month to live, I would spend every waking moment with my kids and my husband and let the laundry pile up and the dishes overflow the sink and, um, and just spend quality time with them. Spend as much time um, reading the scripture, connecting with God, and spending time with my family. Live life to the fullest. Uh, I'd live life on the edge. I would go on an awesome vacation. I would tell my family I loved them, and I would max out all my credit cards. I'd go on a cruise. Go on a trip, yeah. Go to New Zealand. Go to Australia <laughs> and have a good time. I'd go skydiving. Um, I'd probably travel. Yeah. Sell, sell my house and travel for a month. Um, probably take my family and try to go on a big hunting trip somewhere. Join a heavy metal band and tour for that month. Ah, uh, jump out of an airplane. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I'd probably apologize to everyone I'm supposed to apologize to. Uh, I had one month to live. I think I would... Um, Spend, a, spend more time, not that I don't, but I do, uh, with my family. I'd spend all my time with my family, and I have a great, I have a lot of uh, meals with them. Big round table, and we'd all have a great big party. Make sure that I had forgiveness for everybody in my family that has ever, that we've ever had differences between us. Stop yelling at my kids. I would uh, make sure that I, I get in touch with everyone that uh, I haven't spoken to in a while and make sure that they know that I care about them and uh, I'd make sure that everybody hears the message of Jesus Christ. Just pray real hard. <laughs> That's all I can say. Spend time with my family and my newborn child. Hang out. I'd hang out with my son. We'd be playing golf and playing baseball and having fun. I would spend time with my wife and uh, tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I had one month to live, I probably would see the people that I haven't seen in a long time, establish relationships I haven't established in a long time, do a lot of praying, and read my Bible. I would probably, uh, I don't know, clean my garage. <laughs> That's in case you fell asleep during the video. <laughs> so what would you do if you had one month to live? You may have noticed there's a door up here. Whenever we walk through a door, we're going someplace, aren't we? We're going from one place to another. Doors are, are transition points, portals that get us from where we are to where we want to be. And, and some doors are capable of producing in us certain emotions, depending on what's on the other side. 
I mean, when we walk through some doors, we might have a feeling of, of excitement or anticipation. Think about going home after you've been away for a while. Think about what's on the other side of that door, the, 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 the love of your family. Maybe uh, eating those big meals around a table together. Other doors might, um, might give us a sense of familiarity, even almost drudgery. I mean, particularly if, it's, um, if we've worked at the same place for a while. When we go through that door, we kind of know what we're going to face, don't we? We even say things like, same um, stuff, different day. Other doors cause us to feel a sense of unrest, fear, like the door to the doctor's office maybe, or the door to the IRS audit office. It all depends on what's on the other side of that door. Vicky and I can walk through the exact same door together and have completely opposite feelings. I love office supply stores. Now, that's just a quirk of my personality. I've loved them since I was a kid. And so I can walk into a Staples or an Office Depot, and, and I just am as excited as I can be about the new and interesting things I'm going to find. <laughs> and Vic goes into office supply stores solely because she is an incredible woman. And loves her big dummy of a husband so much. <laughs> On the other hand, when we walk through the door of um, uh, bath and bed and body works and beyond, <laughs> I just get tired. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there must be less oxygen in those places because I just can barely move. But in that thin air environment, Vicky just becomes energized. She's like a kid at Christmas time. Woo! I want one of those. Oh, look at this. Smell this. We need this. We have soap. How can there be so many different kinds of soap? When some of you walked in the doors of the church a few minutes ago, some of you felt excitement because you've been looking forward to, to celebrating Easter. Some of you felt anticipation. You were, you were curious to find out what the service and the worship experience was going to be like today. Some of you walked through the doors of the church and you maybe felt a little uh, apprehensive, maybe even intimidated a little because this is your first time at, at New Hope and you were a little nervous about what might happen. And some of you, who haven't been to church in a really long time, were extremely happy when you walked in the door and the roof did not cave in. <laughs> Easter is all about a door. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ walked through the door of human existence. He walked into our world. He lived here. He died here. He was raised from the dead here. And 2,000 years later, as I said earlier, 2 billion people around the world are celebrating Easter. And on that very first Easter, on Sunday morning, after Jesus had been dead and buried for three days, the women, his, his friends, his, some of his family, went to the, the graveyard to, to tend to his body, to take care of him but he wasn't there. And the angel spoke to them and said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. 
He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as He said would happen. Listen, Easter is a celebration because Jesus is alive. He's alive. Just like He told His followers over and over again, He would be. And what's more, He wants you and me to be fully alive. Fully alive. One of the early church leaders, a preacher who lived just a few years after Jesus did, his name was Irenaeus, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. God wants us to be fully alive. He wants us to to live a passionate, purposeful life. But let me tell you something. Most people are not fully alive. If you don't believe it, look around. Most people are just going through the motions. They're just existing. They're not really living. And that's not what God intended for us. Listen, if that describes you this morning, you are settling for less than God's best. You are settling for the life that God does not want you to have instead of the life He wants to give you. But you know what? That's been a problem ever since God created people. I mean, think about it. All the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve were in this perfect environment with limitless, with almost limitless doors of opportunity around them. And God said, I created all of this for you. It's all for you. And you can walk through any of these doors and you can enjoy life. You can eat what you want to eat. You can go where you want to go. You can do what you want to do. You can go through any of these doors except one. There's one door that's off limits, just one. There's one tree that you can't eat the the fruit from it. And what did they do? They went straight to that tree and disobeyed God. And that created a wall. A wall between God and His people. A wall between His goodness and our disobedience. A wall between His perfection and our imperfection. Let's call it a wall of regret. It's a wall of regret that causes us to be afraid of God and to try to live our lives outside of His plan. In fact, after Adam and Eve sinned, after they disobeyed God, God came looking for them. And here's what Adam said to God. I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid. That's our oldest, worst problem. We build walls between us and God. Walls that cause us to be separated from Him. Walls that make us distant from Him and afraid of Him. We build our walls with stones of regret. Regret for the times we lost our temper. Regret for those days we lost control. Regret for those years we lost our priorities. Regret for the moment we lost our innocence. One stone after another. 
one guilty stone after another. The wall keeps growing, and it gets really tall, and it keeps us separated from God. Well, I want you to know something. The good news of Easter is that guilt and regret are unnecessary because God put a door in the wall of guilt and sin, and we don't have to live behind the wall anymore. The first door God provided at Easter is the door of forgiveness. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, we read these words. We are made right with God. Folks, that's what it takes to come out from behind the wall. We've got to be made right with God. So we want to pay attention to this. If you've ever wondered, how can I correct this this thing between me and God? How can I fix this? Here it is. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. God says that He will accept us and declare us not guilty if we trust Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And here's the thing. We're all made right with God in that same way by placing our faith in Christ no matter who we are or where we've been or what we've done. When Christ canceled on the cross all the guilt and regret from the past, we are now able to be made right with God. And that's the only way to be made right with God. Easter means there's a door to forgiveness. And that's good news because the very next verse in Romans 3 says this. Verse 23 says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That means nobody's perfect. Sorry to disappoint you. You get to thinking that you're perfect, just ask somebody else. Anybody, just pick a random person. Nobody's perfect. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things that we, that we know are wrong. And we know that we've done those things. And so you know what we do? We try to tear this wall down ourselves. We try to knock it down. And we, we do it by trying really hard to be really good, to be a good person. Or at least to be a little bit better than somebody else we know who's a little bit worse. We do it by being better, doing more, trying harder. We, we do it by trying to do good works. We do it by trying to follow religion with rules and regulations. And it doesn't work. And the result is more guilt and more frustration as we begin to see clearly that we cannot measure up to holy God's standard. That we don't have it all together. And furthermore, if we did have it all together, we would not remember where we put it. And God knew. God knew that we could never tear down the wall of guilt. So, He did it for us. He did it for us. He knocked down the wall of guilt and regret on Easter, and gave us a door to forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God, given to you. The good news of Easter is that anybody, anybody, 
No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how badly you've messed up, no matter how big of a mess you've made of your life, no matter, matter how high, how tall your wall of guilt and regret, if we will stop trying to tear the wall down ourselves and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and walk through the door of forgiveness, we can come to God. Easter is about a door to forgiveness. And it's about a door of reconciliation. Did you see the bucket list? The movie came out a few years ago. It was a, it was a fun movie, an enjoyable story. Two men, played by Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, uh, meet when they share a hospital room and uh, after they're both told that they're terminally ill. And naturally, in the way things only happen in the movies, they become best friends. And they make a list of all the things they want to do before they kick the bucket. That's their, their bucket list. And so they drive race cars, and they go skydiving, and go to exotic places all over the world. Now, I didn't say it was realistic. I said it was fun. <laughs> you know, it seems to me that most of us don't have the money to do the things that the characters in that movie did. Uh, it, it, extravagant, expensive things. Of course, it helped that one of them was extremely wealthy. Although I never could quite figure it out, the rich one who owned the hospital couldn't get a private room. I couldn't figure that one out. But let me tell you something. I've been with some people at the end of their life. That's part of being a pastor. I've been with some people when they've been told by their doctor, "Is really all we can do is make you comfortable. I've been with some people while their family held their hands through hospice care to the end of their lives. And I want you to know something. I've never had a single one of those people tell me that they regretted missing out on some kind of exotic, extravagant adventure. I, never once has someone on their deathbed said to me, if only I could have gone skydiving, then my life would have been totally complete and fulfilling. I've never heard that. Let me tell you what I have heard. Most of the regrets expressed by people at the end of their lives have to do with relationships. Broken ones. Lost ones. Most of the regrets have to do with words not spoken. Words of love and appreciation. Words of forgiveness. Never had anybody say, I wish I could have ridden a bull. But I've had them say, I wish I hadn't held a grudge. I wish I hadn't hurt other people. We not only build a wall between ourselves and God, we, we also build walls between ourselves and other people. When there's an argument and it ends with a slammed door and a wall goes up in our marriage, or there's some kind of nasty conflict at work and a wall goes up between us and our coworkers. Or a parent and a teenager have a conflict and a wall goes up between parent and child. We build these walls. We build these walls in our relationships and they make us feel isolated and alone. Sometimes we build those walls with stones of, of hurt and rejection that we receive during our lives. 
and we start, those walls start getting built very early on, and they're made of stones that we didn't ask for. It's just part of our life experience. We don't have to wait very long to, to accumulate a big old stack of stones of rejection. When we're a kid, maybe we don't make the team, or, or we make a bad grade, or we make a poor choice. Maybe we got called a few names. And then we grow up, but you know what? The stones don't stop piling up even though we grow up. We get passed over for promotion or we get betrayed by someone that we trusted. And we get hurt by someone that we love. And so we build these walls. And we build them to protect ourselves, never realizing the whole time that we're hurting ourselves and our relationships. That walling ourselves off from others doesn't hurt others. It doesn't really protect us. It hurts us and leaves us unprotected. We've got to learn with God's help, by His power, to lower the walls in our lives and let other people in. Let them in. You know what happens is that once we've walked through the door of forgiveness and there are no more walls between us and God, we find out that we don't really like walls. We don't really want them to be there. And so when one starts going up, like when we have a problem in a relationship with somebody, it bothers us. And we want to reach out. We want to be the first one to call. We want to follow God's lead. We want to open that door of reconciliation. But, but how? How in the world? How do we reconcile relationships? How do we, how do we forgive other people? Well, we're going to be talking about those things through this One Month to Live series. I really encourage you to be here for each one of these messages over the next few weeks. But here's something today that I think will help us. See, we've got to know that we're not left to our own abilities. We're not left to our own talents and skills and our own strength in order to, to, for forgiveness and reconciliation to be present in our lives. Listen, forgiveness and reconciliation is God's work. It's God's work in us. In Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 19 and 20, Paul is praying for Christians and he says, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. In other words, you're not left to your own power. You're not left to your own skill and ability. It's the power of Jesus Christ, the power that raised Him from the dead that is at work in you to help you go through the door of forgiveness and reconciliation. I want you to watch a video. It's, it's, a, it's, it's somewhat long for this point in the message. It's a little over five minutes, but please uh, uh, pay attention. I, I'm sure that th- this story will uh, impact you just the way it has impacted me. It's, um, it's a, a, a woman from Texas. Named, uh, her last name is McDonough, and uh, she has tragic and incredible experiences in her life. So watch this. Two thousand and six was.
pretty much a devastating year for me. Um, I had been with my husband for 30 years, and at Christmas, he presented me with divorce papers. And I didn't think that I would ever experience anything more painful and more devastating than that until April the 13th, 2006 came along. Brian is my, was my 22-year-old son who was away at college. Brian was found on a couch with his guitar and they had just assumed that maybe he had, through the depression of his father leaving, because Brian took that very, very hard, that maybe he had taken drugs or something. As a mother, I knew that that wasn't true because my son had a relationship with God. He had been baptized in 2000. On October the 4th, I got a telephone call from the district attorney telling me that two men had been arrested in Brian's death for killing him. One of the young men who had been on a parole violation uh, when Brian was killed, um, they had settled with another county his charges and he was being extradited to the county where Brian was killed and uh, would stand trial the next week, which was the 9th of October. And could I come and make a statement? And then I prayed to God, just God, just help me here because I, I don't know what to do. Well, I met in the district attorney's office and he asked me if I had my statement and I said, actually I do, I have a copy of it here. And she said, may I see it? And so he read the letter and he excused himself and came back and, uh, and he said, we're gonna take you into the courtroom. And so they took me into the courtroom and they brought Jeremy into the, to the box and here's the young man that is on trial for the death of my son. Then the judge said, Miss McDonough, um, you know, now is your time to speak. And so he brought me up to the front of the court and then he started telling me, now Miss McDonough, this is a court of law and we will not have any shouting or cussing or, or any kind of anger directed at the, at the young man and you know you you must speak in a dignified tone and um, and you may have the floor when when you're ready and I just picked myself back up and I said you know I don't know what you were thinking on April the 13th when Brian died and I'm not really sure that it even matters now but what does matter is what you're thinking now and uh, so I just want you to know that I forgive you and I do it selfishly because uh, I see God standing over there with his hand on your shoulder pleading with me to forgive you. And this was part of my letter to Jeremy that uh, from this day forward, it is my prayer that you be a saver of lives and not one that destroys lives. Your path has made it possible for you to be a shining example of the power of God in someone's life. If Brian's life had to be sacrificed so that you are able to save thousands of broken lives, including your own, then he did not die in vain 
and I find comfort in God's will being done. Before we walked out, Jeremy said, Miss McDonough, he said, I would hug you if I could, but if I were to even start towards you, these men would throw me down on the floor. And I said, that's all right, Jeremy, I, I know how you feel. And so when we're walking out, of course, they escorted him out first. And his box was right there that he had to sit in. So when I went by, I patted him on the back. And just, and when I did that, I saw the judge stand up and he goes, Miss McDonough, and I thought, I'm fixing to go to jail for assault or something. And he said, will you come here? And I, and I went over to, to where he was and he reached over and put out his hand and he goes, uh, I just want to tell you that that was just an incredible letter and may I have a copy of it? He said, because there are other people that need to hear those words that you said. I just think that if you have an opportunity to reach your hand out and grab somebody and say, come over to this side and experience love, then that's what you should do. And I would spend my 30 days just reassuring Jeremy that life can be so good and to uh, be this incredible young man that he can be. She knows the power of God to reconcile and restore. And I want to tell you that the good news of Easter is that the power that enables a mother to forgive her son's murderer is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's the same power that's available in my life and in your life. To help us in our marriage. To help us get along with our co-workers. To help us restore our relationship with our children. The same power that brought Jesus back to life is available to you and me to give us a fresh start, a do-over made possible by forgiveness. Because of Easter, there's a door of reconciliation if we choose to walk through it. And because the tomb is empty, our lives can be full. Jesus is alive. I'm challenging every one of you to get involved in the One Month to Live challenge. Read the book. We have the book available. We have the book on CD out there available as well. Sign up. Get involved in a life group. And, and ask yourself this question every day. What if I just had one month to live? How would I live? What would I do? Not because you're going to die in a month. <laughs> Lord willing, we're all going to live a lot more, many more years. But I really believe if we will live the next 30 days as if they are our last, at the end of that time, we will understand how to live better than we ever have before. There's one more door that we need to talk about, and it's a big one. And most of us don't like to talk about it because it has to do with death. The universal problem, the one we all face because everyone dies. 
There are some things in this life that take us by surprise. None of us know the precise time of our death, but we can know, we all know, that we are going to die. So how foolish is it to go through life unprepared for the one thing we know is inevitable? We prepare for all kinds of contingencies, all kinds of things that never happen. How foolish is it to go through life unprepared for the one thing that we know is going to happen? We don't know how long we have. We may live for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. But after that, eternity is forever. And every single one of us will spend that eternity in one of two places. We live in an uncertain world, a world full of war and, and, and disease and disaster. But because of Easter, God says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of what comes after death. Because the third door of Easter is the door to heaven. Now, when we think about heaven, we think of the cartoon version where everybody's walking around on clouds, right, wearing robes and wings and playing harps. Can I just tell you that sounds terrible to me? That does not sound like someplace that I would want to go. But the Bible says heaven is a real place, that it's the most beautiful, incredible place we can ever dream of. That what it really is is creation as God intended it to be from the beginning. And when we are there, our lives, every moment of our lives, will have meaning and be fulfilling and have purpose. And the only way to get there, the only way to get there is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He lived on this earth and died on the cross, that He was buried and rose from the grave. Jesus said this in John 17, verse 3, This is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And an awful lot of people do believe in the resurrection. A Gallup poll found that 84% of Americans believe Jesus rose from the dead. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what we believe. It's a historical fact. I mean, it, it happened. It wasn't done in secret. It happened right out in the open. The whole city of Jerusalem knew about it. Eventually, the entire Roman Empire knew it. It was big news. I mean, if Fox News or CNN had been around, it would be covered 24 hours a day live. There are at least 15 historical references to Jesus meeting with people after he was dead. One time, he appeared to more than 500 people. Now, if he had only appeared to one or two people, we might be able to say, well, they're lying. They made it up. They, they wished he was alive, so they imagined it. But 500 people? The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. There is no doubt, no question that Jesus rose from the dead. But let me tell you what the question is. What difference does it make in my life, in your life, that Jesus rose from the dead? It can make all the difference in the world. It can make an eternal difference if we let it. Because if we will walk through the door of forgiveness and the door of reconciliation, then we have full assurance that we will walk through the door to heaven someday. One of the best known, best loved, most imitated paintings in the world is Holman Hunt's painting entitled, I Stand at the Door. You've seen it. You've probably seen some form of it. Some of us saw it this morning at the sunrise service. If you look real closely, 
maybe this has been pointed out to you before, but you look real closely, and there's no knob on the outside of that door. Because it was the artist's intention to let us know that Jesus can't open that door and come in. We have to open the door and invite Him in. Here's what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and share a meal with you as a friend. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, we're told that Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him, and your roots will grow down in God's love and keep you strong. I believe it's possible to live life in such a way that when we come to the end of our lives, we have no regrets, or very few regrets anyway. I mean, no one sets out to lead a life of regret. I mean, I've never met anybody that said, my goal is to have a thousand regrets when I die. I'm on 569 now, but I'm still working on it. No, you know what happens? What happens is we strand ourselves on an island, on someday I'll. Someday I'll get around to that. Someday I'll do that. Someday when things settle down, when, when is this magical period when things settle down? Have you ever said that? When things settle down? Who are we kidding? It never settles down. And if we don't learn to live, to really live, in the middle of stress and chaos, guess what? We will never learn to really live. We'll never learn to enjoy life. If we don't learn to do the things that are important and essential in the middle of full calendars and busy schedules, we will never do them. We will never do the things that are important because life is always going to be busy. Schedules are always going to be full. We have to wake up to the fact that someday is today. Someday is today. This is your someday. This is my someday. This is all we have. This is all that we know that we have. And some of us have been saying, you know, someday when things settle down, I'm really going to focus on my marriage. I'm going to get that thing working the way it's supposed to be working. Have a great relationship with my spouse. Someday when things settle down, I'm going to focus more time and attention on the kids. Someday when things settle down, I'm going to put God first. Well, listen, it's not going to happen unless we decide to put God first and do those important things today, right now, right now, now, now. The most important word in the English language, and there's a verse in the New Testament where it occurs twice, back to back. It's repeated twice in a row. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. It says the right time is now. Now is the day of salvation. Now, now. Now is the time. Now is all we have. We're always looking for someday. We're always waiting for something else to happen. We're always looking for a sign. Well, let me tell you something. The sign is that you got out of bed, got dressed, and came in here this morning. Now is the time. Today 
is the day. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you, because of Easter and because of what Jesus has done, because He lived for you, because He died for you, because He rose from the dead for you, I'm asking you to open the door of your heart to Jesus Christ. Do not wait. Do it right now. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.